Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am your host on the New Books and Jewish Studies channel, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored today to be in dialogue with my dear guests, Benedict Eckhart and Kimberly Tchaikovsky. We will be discussing their new book, Herod in History, Nicolaus of Damascus and the Augustan Context published in New York by Oxford University Press 2021. Thank you for your time today. I'm tremendously grateful for your generosity. Thank you for having me. Sorry. Hi. <laughs> yeah, very Thank nice you. to meet you. Thank you. To begin, can you kindly uh, tell us about yourselves? Where did you grow up? Were there any formative events in your lives that stimulated the scholars that you would later become? Shall I go first? Um, so I grew up in um, the southeast of England, um, sort of not so close to London, but you're probably thinking if you don't know England, if that is the nearest big city. Um, and I don't know that there was anything formative that like made me become a scholar even in the first place. It was simply something that was I never quite stopped. I really enjoyed Latin in particular at school. And then I thought, oh, I'd like to do some more history and ancient history at university. And I was just always interested in the next thing. And I just never really lost that interest. And so I just carried on and I've ended up here, essentially. So I don't think any big, great formative experiences. Benedict, how are you? How about you? Well, uh, I grew up in Germany, um, as you can hear from the accent. I was born in Dusseldorf in the West. And uh, yeah, thinking about formative experiences, um, I, I can't remember as a child being very interested in antiquity or in religion, uh, certainly not. Um, so I guess those were just things that I didn't know about when I came to university to study history. And that was then what made them exciting. And uh, then, of course, much happens by chance. You have a nice, a good course with a good course organizer on Herod in this case, which I think I took in 2005. And then I just stayed with the subject. It just inspired my interest. That's what good teachers can do sometimes. We try to do that to our students as well. I'm not sure that it always works. Yeah. Very occasionally. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, I should mention that... Uh, both Kimberly and Benedict are senior lecturers in ancient history at the University of Edinburgh. Could I ask you to share a bit about how you came to be colleagues? How did you first meet and how did the collaboration behind this project originate? Benedict, do you want to go first this time? Yes, of course. Uh, So we met when we were briefly overlapping in Münster in Germany So I had been there for six years already, and Kim just started when I left for a different university. So we had an overlap of maybe two months or so, and that was in late 2014. Uh, And yeah, of course, we 
quickly noticed that we share interests. And uh, Kim had already written at that point, I think, or was close to, to having written an article about Herod. And I had uh, already written my, my PhD thesis on uh, Judean matters. And so we talked, yeah. And uh, now that, we, that we're both at the same university now is a bit of a coincidence, I suppose, in that you can't predict this outcome. Kim got her job in 2016 and I got mine in 2018. Um, yeah, but of course now that works very nicely indeed. Yeah, I think it, it was, in some ways the book was um, the result of long talks, essentially, and an initial early idea from um, Benedict had had an interest in Herod for a very long time and had been writing bits about Nicolaus as well, um, both in his book and in a couple of articles. I had um, sort of come from a different direction and had been thinking about um, particularly trials and Herod's sons and so on, um, but had come at it a bit newer. Um, uh, we just carried on talking. I think there was an initial idea for a book fairly early on, and then we both had lots of other things to do as well. So it sort of sat in the background until a few years ago, we just sort of thought, actually, right, there is something there that we really want to pursue. And so we got down to really writing it and finishing it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, to begin, can you offer a biographical portrait of Nicholas of Damascus for the benefit of those who are not familiar with him? Yeah, of course. Uh, I guess he's not one of the most famous ancient writers, in part because we don't actually have his writings. And that, um, as we will, I think, discuss later, is the main challenge of our book that we have written about a text that um, isn't there in any in any real sense. So Nicolaus, um, as the name suggests, Nicolaus of Damascus was born in Syria, in Damascus, in probably 64 BC. So at the very moment, really, when the whole Near East was transformed by Pompey's involvement uh, with, uh, well, after the Mithridatic Wars. Um, so Pompey creates this province of Syria that would remain uh, important in the Roman provincial administration, and uh, thus thereby, of course, abolishing the Seleucid Empire. And Nicolaus was born well in that very year, so he never saw anything else but but Roman supremacy in that whole region. We don't know much about his early life. In fact, hardly anything apart from the fact that he received a Greek education, as people would of a certain standing. Damascus, of course, being a multicultural city at that time, but um, certainly a city that had seen kings like Demetrius III rule there and. Um, those were Greek kings, so uh, so were the Greek civic institutions of Damascus. So in that sense, he was a cultural Greek, perhaps you could say. Um, and we next, the next certain thing we hear about him is that he was supposedly the educator of the children of Cleopatra of Egypt and Mark Antony. Um, so that could suggest that he was actually at Cleopatra's court, right, in Alexandria, which would not be I think too surprising for an Eastern intellectual to end up there, um, much as he ended up later in Herod's court in, in Jerusalem. Uh, so one possible scenario is that after Cleopatra's court collapsed because she lost the final battle against Octavian uh, at Actium, um, so after that ended, that he would have sort of searched for 
the next court to attach himself to, and that he ended up with Herod the Great in Judea. Um, that is, however, uncertain. We only know for a fact that he was with Herod much later, in uh, 14 BC, is our first actual attestation of that. And then he seems to have stayed with Herod uh, until Herod's death in 4 BC, uh, writing history, writing other things as well. Um, most importantly, his universal history of 144 volumes must have been a massive book, uh, quite unparalleled to uh, by, by anything that we actually have. Uh, but precisely because it was so long, uh, no one bothered to uh, to preserve it for posterity. I think people were bored reading it. So uh, in, the, in later Roman history, people read shorter books. And uh, that's why Nicolaus's work has not survived, only in small fragments. So um, when trying to talk about his, his life's work, we largely have to, um, have to rely on those small fragments. And of a longer one, um, uh, there is a longer fragment of his life of Augustus. Um, he presumably died at Rome. We know that he did go to Rome after Herod's death. Uh, we don't know in what circumstances he lived there. Um, he seems to have been uh, in the wider circle of Augustus's uh, friends, so he was probably well off. Um, but we also don't know when he died, so there's a lot of uncertainty about him in that regard. What inspired you to write about Nicholas of Damascus? What inspired you to write this book? What do you hope readers will gain from it? Well, if I can just continue briefly, and then Kim can tell us about her inspiration for this. But uh, to me, what was interesting about it is that it is a book as a thought experiment. We don't have the universal history that Nicolaus wrote. Uh, but we can try to make assumptions about what was in it. And that is an intellectual puzzle that you can find interesting, at least I find interesting. And we know for a fact that he wrote about Herod quite a bit, because Josephus tells us so. And uh, I think we will get to Josephus in a moment as well. Uh, so our actual source for Herod nowadays is Flavius Josephus. But we know that he read Nicolaus of Damascus's book and uh, criticized it, but also took much information from it. And in that constellation, there is an interesting a uh, question to ask, what would Nicolaus have written about Herod, given that he was at his court for at least a decade, perhaps longer, um, and presumably finished his work only in Rome when Herod was already dead. And the most common view that you find is that he would have written only nice things about Herod, that he was basically his propagandist, because he was a court historian. Uh, but there may be more to it. There may be something uh, something else to uncover, something that says more about Nicolaus himself and his position at Rome. And yeah, we wanted to know how much we can gain rereading Josephus with that assumption in mind, right? Rereading him with the idea that he isn't just working with uh, the work of a propagandist and trying to sort of correct it and you know give a more neutral account. Uh, but that he's actually working with a fairly complex representation of Herodian kingship um, as well. And that he might actually have been working with the work of someone who was in some respects quite similar to himself, Josephus being an immigrant to Rome, uh, just like Nicolaus was. Josephus also coming from the Near East to Rome, just like Nicolaus was. 
but Kim, maybe you have you have a different uh, approach to to why you wanted to write this book. I I think in some ways it's similar. I'd put it differently that maybe the fascination is that we have or potentially have, because this is always potentially, almost everything we do in this book is kind of speculative or could be argued in a slightly different direction. Um, but you have potentially two different perspectives, ancient perspectives on the same historical figure, i.e. Herod. And as Benedict said, in many ways, these two people's biographies are comparable. You can show that they have they are immigrants to Rome, they have contacts with the imperial centre, but they also have Eastern origins. But there are some differences as well, which can filter through into way, the ways that they would treat this historical figure. And it was what happened if, as Benedict said, you read the text that we have with this different idea in mind of what one writer was trying to do, i.e. what Nicolaus was trying to do in his narratives, that he wasn't just trying to enthusiastically praise Herod, that he was rather trying to defend himself, basically, as to what he had done in this court of this figure, who probably was quite well known by that point in time as being rather problematic in kind of intellectual circles. And then how that changes how we sort of evaluate the text that we have in Josephus, possibly also how that has consequences for what how we might indeed eventually get to the so-called real Herod, because there are then some methodological issues that are usually kind of, usually if we approach, how do we find out what the real Herod in inverted commas was really like? Well, Josephus is probably very, very critical. Nicolaus is probably very, very uh, sort of encomiastic and so on. So if we go somewhere in between, we're probably getting nearer the truth. And if you actually take away one of those assumptions what do we do and I don't we don't really kind of answer that question of what do we do at the end but we do unpick that methodological problem a bit in the book and I thought that that was an interesting exercise and that the texts themselves are just fascinating along the way. What does your book teach us about ancient Rome? Where do you situate your book in the contemporary study of ancient Rome? I think, I mean, if we're thinking about ancient Rome as a city, it tells us nothing. <laughs> but if we're thinking about Rome as a power and the Roman Empire and how it's developing, and also about the, we could say the constitutional system in some ways, the idea of Augustus, the first emperor coming to power and the formation of the Principate, that is where I think our book fits in because rather than just looking at perhaps what Roman writers are saying around this time, um, or indeed looking at, say, what Augustus himself wrote about what he was doing in the Res Gestae, in this account of his deeds that was published posthumously and put up on inscriptions across the empire. What we've got instead is this kind of peripheral perspective, in a way, as, Nicola as um, Benedict was talking about with Nicolaus, that you have this Syrian intellectual from writing in Greek, from the Greek East, using his own models as well that are taken from Greek literary traditions and Greek historiographical traditions to try to make sense of what is happening with this new world order, with the fact that we now have sort of a king of kings, we have this world empire in the form of the Roman Empire and then Augustus at the centre, this one ruler. And that is that's maybe where that fits into, let's say, the more recent 
trends in the study of Roman history more generally that I think, I won't overestimate it, I won't say in the last 10 years, but maybe in the last 30 now years, there's been an increasing movement to think more about how outsiders may have factored into the history of the Roman Empire. And that's either how they viewed Rome or how they lived their lives and so on. There are many different ways of doing that. So I think where we fit in is that we are thinking a bit more about how that peripheral perspective looks on this emerging principle, this emerging world order, and how that might give us a different take on our understanding of Roman history as well. How does your book advance our understanding of historiography? Um, I can uh, maybe I can yeah sure just go on (laughs) (laughs) you can chip in Um, I think probably there are there's a two-pronged answer to this one is a bit more specific and a bit more narrow and one maybe feeds into larger question the first um, we've sort of touched on a bit and I think Benedict kind of introduced this in that we try to rethink what one particular writer was doing in his historical work, i.e. what Nicolaus was doing in his universal history when he wrote about Herod and suggest that this is perhaps rather different from previous assumptions on this. So, as I said, it is more about a kind of self-defense of his own actions. It's not just about encomiastically um, writing about Herod and so on, and that this might indeed give us a slightly bit different perspective on his work in general. Um, However, the broader point perhaps is that what I think we're trying to do is in some ways insert the, the history part back into historiography in a broader tendency that has sometimes gone recently more towards the literary or the more narrative idea. Now, there's been a lot of value in that, in that, for example, on Josephus in the last um, maybe 20 years, there's been a lot more treatment of Josephus as an author and thinking about his literary preoccupations, how he is sculpting his narrative and so on. And that's been really valuable and really good because we've rethought what Josephus is doing. Um, It's been a bit of a change from what had dominated probably quite a long time ago now, but still of kind of not thinking about Josephus seriously as an author. But perhaps the drawback to that is that there's been less consideration of what he does with his sources and the fact that he is trying to write history. He is not just trying to write a nice narrative and so on. There is a kind of historical inquiry going in. And I think what we're trying to do is think a bit more about that side of things and how that feeds into both what we think about Nicolaus, but also what we think about Josephus as a writer as well and how history is constructed. Um, Benedict, do you have something to add? Anything more on historiography? Yeah, I, I think, of course, yeah, all of that is correct. One should perhaps point out this is specifically about writing history on a grand scale, right? Yeah. So Nicolaus writes universal history. He starts somewhere in you know uh, the early uh, Near East and then uh, works his way through 144 volumes uh, all the way down pretty much to his own day. 
And uh, Josephus, of course, when he writes Antiquities, uh, starts with the creation of the world in uh, just just 20 books, though. But but still, I mean, it's a thousand pages in print uh, going, uh, you know, all the way just to the beginning of the Jewish war. So that kind of writing of history um, obviously requires previous material. Otherwise, you would have to make it all up, right? You were not there when uh, the world was created, let's say. Or uh, you know when uh, when Sai was uh, you know what uh, was active in the Near East, so we I think where we can say our book sort of makes a contribution is understanding how ancient authors engage with other ancient authors that have written before them, right? Uh, this is indeed a question that doesn't really come up if you write like Josephus also did, for example, your own autobiography. Or if you write about the Jewish war and you have actually been a part of it, you probably don't need uh, that much engagement with um, sometimes centuries old earlier texts. But Nicolaus did need to read all that. And uh, Josephus then read Nicolaus. And uh, that is an interesting intellectual process uh, that also, of course, uh, relates to how we write history nowadays. Because in the way, in a way, the situation hasn't really changed. Of course, we now read Josephus as a source uh, because we were not there. So uh, it's very relatable in a way. And um, yeah, that. So I think the kind of history writing that these people do is very ambitious and uh, of a kind that we no longer do. No one nowadays would write a universal history. They still thought it could be done. And uh, it's interesting to think how how they did it. And then, of course, how specific events are made to fit this framework. For example, how, how Herod is presented uh, in a universal history that has so many other characters in it. And indeed, how patterns come through in this, as you said, like as you might have um, particular ways of writing about these, these rulers that you can see not quite repeated, but varied and the themes used, um, which comes through in Herod as well. To listeners of ours who might be beginners in understanding this period, can you offer a biographical portrait of Josephus Flavius for the benefit of those who might not know about him? Um, yeah, of course. Um, so Josephus was born probably in around about 37 CE. He's um, born in Judea. He is of priestly descent, which is very important in the Jewish tradition. And he claims, too, that he was um, descended from the Hasmoneans through his mother's side. So the Hasmoneans being the royal household of Judea before Herod comes along and before um, Herod rises as this kind of grand usurper and so on. So he is of very, very good standing. And we know this because he wrote his own autobiography, just like Nicolaus as well. So this is where sort of you start to see the kind of similarities between the two people. Um, in the autobiography, we also get do get a few details about his childhood. He claims um, he was very precocious, i.e. that he was very learned in legal matters, for example. He says that priests came to talk to him and consult him on legal matters, even when he was a boy of 14 years old. Um, how much we believe his self-assessment is another matter, but this is what how he presents himself. Um, I think perhaps um, most pertinent 
for your listeners is um, to sort of jump forward a little bit and think about his behavior later when we get to the Great Revolt, um, which is in 66 CE. And this is a revolt um, that takes place in Judea. It becomes against Rome. There's a little bit of debate in scholarship as to whether this was originally an anti-Roman revolt or whether it was more of a kind of local tensions breaking out between different Judean groups that then takes on an anti-Roman character later and so on. But I don't think we need to go too much into that. But he is involved initially on the rebel side. He is one of the rebel leaders. He is in command in Galilee. And this continues until um, a big siege in Yodfat, uh, Yodopata, in 67, which the rebels lose. Uh, Romans besiege them for, I think, 47 days, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and Josephus then ends up in a cave with about 40 other rebel leaders, where they all decide that they are going to commit suicide to avoid the ignominy of surrendering to the Romans. But by happenstance, um, or the way that Josephus tells it, because they sort of are meant to draw lots to decide who kills each other, basically, in this cave, he and one other person are the last ones left. And then they decide to surrender to the Romans anyway. And this is important for kind of later treatments or later reception of Josephus, because by some Jews later, he has this reputation as a traitor, that he did go on over to the Romans afterwards anyway. And he then acts um, sort of on behalf of the Roman leaders um, as a kind of interpreter at the siege of Jerusalem for um, Titus, the future emperor, um, the son of um, who would also be the future emperor of Vespasian. Um, he finally ends up back at Rome, having performed quite a lot of good service for um, the Romans in the kind of ensuing part of the war, where he seems to have been freed. He becomes a Roman citizen, which is how he then comes to be referred to as Flavius Josephus because he takes that name as getting Roman citizenship and it's there that he starts to write a lot at Rome and he writes a history of the Jewish war which is an account exactly of this re revolt um, starting rather earlier but then building up to this um, and ending in kind of the triumph um, at Rome after this great rebellion and after the Romans have put it down but then also the antiquities which I think Benedict has already mentioned this great account of Jewish history starting basically from the creation of the world up to his own time um, and then his own autobiography The Life and also a very small work in two books of The Against Appian which is a later title but is essentially refuting various accusations against the Jewish people. All of these as we have them are written in Greek which might mean he's trying to engage audiences other than Jews um, there may have been an Aramaic version of the war as well, but we don't have that. Um, it's lost to us. And so we can sort of trace what he is doing in writing this much as an exile in Rome, essentially, after this life history. What does your book teach us about propaganda? Well, <laughs> that is a good question. Um, does it tell us how to write efficient propaganda? Uh, probably not. Um, so first off, uh, of course, we are trying to establish the point that Nicolaus wasn't actually writing propaganda, right? Um, so we argue that things are a bit more complex than that. But uh, even if he was, I suppose, what our book does highlight is Nicolaus's personal involvement in the events at Herod's court, 
and his own desire to come off as someone who basically, you know, couldn't have prevented what was happening there because people at Rome knew that Herod was was not easy to deal with, right? They knew that he killed his sons, for example. So uh, Herod uh, uh, was a known figure in the Roman Empire, even though people didn't know all the details. And uh, even if you were to take it as propaganda, which again, is it is a problematic term as well. People don't often use it for antiquity, but let's say it was propaganda. It tells us how it is simplistic to just simply assume that this is what Herod would have wanted to see. Because uh, Nicolaus was writing not just about Herod, he was writing a 144 volume universal history and he fitted Herod in there. So it shows how any propaganda to actually work would need to be embedded into a context that makes sense to people. You can't just, you know, without context and without, uh, you know, any further support, say, this is the greatest ruler of all time. People probably won't know what to do with that kind of statement. Um, if we have Herodian propaganda in Nicolaus, it came more subtly as a sort of, as a strategy of, of showing Herod's rule as the culmination of, of universal history, backed up by hundreds and thousands of pages of universal history before that, mm -hmm. right? So uh, propaganda needs to be embedded to work, I think. Um, and the same is, of course, true for other means of ancient propaganda. Most commonly, I think the term would be employed when we talk about coinage, um, because there you, of course, you have images on coins and you wonder why these images and not others, uh, perhaps because someone thought that this was an efficient propaganda tool or something like that. that that's plausible, right? But even there, you, you can't just say, you know, the king wants to be seen as. You have someone who invented the symbol who probably wasn't the king himself. Uh, you have someone who executed it, uh, who actually, you know, made the coin. And of course, you have the audience have a certain knowledge of iconography and all of that. So uh, propaganda is also more difficult to control than we sometimes like to think. Um, so while we're not saying that Nicolaus is a propagandist, I think if he was, this is probably how propaganda works, right? Uh, not just not just as a piece uh, to be to be served with our context, but embedded into into known uh, tropes and uh, a common world. I think maybe to add to that, um, you said that propaganda is quite difficult to control. It's maybe also that you need to think or we need to think um, about audience a lot in terms of the intended audience of both coinage, for example, and who would have looked at this and who was going to actually be interpreting this, but also in terms of literary narratives, who is actually going to be reading Nicolaus's books on Herod? Um, and how might he have framed that particular narrative if it is propaganda to suit that particular audience? If you're writing for Greek intellectuals or an intellectual circle who is in the court at Rome, you might do something very, very different from if you were writing for a different audience or thinking of performing in a different context. So again, I'm not entirely, I, we sort of try to make the point that actually we shouldn't just think about this in terms of propaganda, but if we are thinking in terms of messaging that is going around in the ancient world and how people would then have formed a judgment on figures afterwards, I think assessing and considering audience and intended audience and actual audience is probably a very important factor. 
Which studies of Herod most influenced your thinking about him? What work in classics most impacted your research? How does your scholarship challenge preconceived views of King Herod in other research? Yeah, Kim, do you want to start? I can start. Um, I I think actually most immediately, um, because there's an awful lot that's written about Herod. I mean, there are so many biographies now of Herod's life and so on in multiple languages. Um, And there's almost a new one every year. Uh, I think we've slowed down a little bit, but maybe a new one is overdue. But I think what actually um, prompted perhaps me thinking about the approach that we took in this book more was actually Mark Toher's work, which is partly about Herod, but also partly precisely on sort of what Nicolaus had possibly been doing in his narrative of Herod and so on. And that in turn is actually building on much, much earlier German scholarship, um, which I then came to after that, I think, and then started reading about in this kind of very late 19th century German scholarship on this, which is absolutely fascinating some of it is problematic in some ways as well but it it really it goes back to this kind of source question in a very different way and so I think that that's probably kind of the indirect route of what started me going on this Um, and in terms of sort of challenging preconceived views of Herod I think as I said before in some ways we're not really doing the historical Herod in this book but what we're trying to do is lay some foundations for how that might be revised later and undermine some of the methodological assumptions that have gone into writing about the historical Herod. So I think that's me. Benedict, do you, what what prompted you, what influenced you mostly? So the first book on Herod that I ever read was Avraham Shalit's biography, uh, which is also the longest and yeah, the most uh, substantial volume uh, that has ever been written about Herod. It's it's old, it's from the 1960s. Um, and I read it in the German version, which is uh, the longest of them all because Shalit had, it was originally written in Hebrew, but he had then added to it for the German translation. And that is, it is a brilliant piece of work. Uh, I mean, Shalit was such a learned person, uh, but much of what he says about Her- Herod there and how he reconstructs even the psychology of Herod is based on on his personal assumptions about Nicolaus of Damascus's work, because uh, Shalit, of course, was very much in this. Uh, uh, he was he was a part of this tradition of scholarship that um, basically saw Josephus as just uh, a vessel, right? As as uh, not as an author in his own right, but as someone who basically copied from his sources. And so he thought he had a lot of Nicolaus there to work with. And uh, that, of course, gave him, because Nicolaus was close to the king, that gave him insights into Herod's psychology and all of that. And um, the way this was done was very intriguing to me, but I also thought it was flawed because it made certain assumptions about Nicolaus that he couldn't prove. And uh, I was interested in turning that around. And then as... As Kim has already said, that there, there are a few things that you have to read if you know you work on Nicolaus of Damascus. Uh, Mark Toher's work is among them, and uh, yeah, I actually came to that part probably the other way around because I remember reading Justus von Destinon's eighteen eighty two book on uh, the sources of Josephus uh, before I read uh, I read Mark Toher. Yes, um, 
and that that was of a different time, of course. That is nineteenth-century German scholarly work, um, which uh, well has a lot to be you know to be praised, but it also often claims to know things that we cannot possibly know. And uh, our book then tries to revive that line of scholarship without its flaws. So we do admit that all of this is hypothetical. We do try to reach less certain, but therefore sometimes more interesting uh, conclusions. Um, for them, it was very much clear cut. This is Josephus, this is Nicolaus. Um, and we often try to, to reconstruct the dialogue, right? Uh, we try to reconstruct Josephus reading Nicolaus and then reframing him for his own purposes. Because Josephus wasn't stupid. Josephus wasn't just copying things, even if they went against his own agenda. As as this, uh, these earlier scholars assumed, I don't think that was the case. Josephus did at least try to make it fit with what he thought, um, and that that is the interesting part of it, really, but also the most difficult part to, to decipher. Yeah, this layering process of okay, we're looking for going back to an author who ultimately would we've lost, but we think we can reconstruct a little bit of what he was trying to do, but then thinking how this later author was using that and changing it for his own purposes. And as Benedict has said, sometimes successfully and sometimes not so successfully and how this plays out in the text as we have it. What kind of an ally was Herod to Rome? Can you comment on Judean-Roman relations during the times of Herod? Does the relationship between Herod and Rome, Judea and Rome, teach any generalizable lessons about the nature of alliances? So Herod was a very loyal ally, uh, very committed. Maybe not so much to Rome itself, I would think, but to individual Romans who happened to be uh, at the very top. So he was an ally to Mark Antony. And then when Mark Antony had lost uh, at Actium, together with Cleopatra, and Octavian Augustus uh, emerged as the new ruler of Rome, he immediately switched that loyalty. Uh, but it was still a personal loyalty then to Augustus. And um, the thing that Josephus writes about him is that Herod was the third best friend, basically, of Augustus. Uh, and uh, we can, you know, we can believe that or not. But uh, he certainly cultivates these personal relations through uh, gifts, but uh, most importantly, through absolute obedience. And that kind of alliance, of course, uh, that is based on absolute obedience and uh, not doing anything whatsoever that might possibly upset uh, the great man in Rome, um, you might not actually call it an alliance uh, nowadays. You might call it a vassalage or something. So, uh, of course, it was framed rhetorically as an alliance. The Romans were always very good at doing that, uh, when in fact what they had was, was vassal kings who could be deposed uh, whenever Augustus, in this case, um, decided to do so. So I guess what it can teach us about alliances might be that alliances work really, really well if one party is obviously superior to the other in terms of you know the actual 
power they hold, because that usually makes for smooth uh, sailing. So there won't be probably too many uh, too many uh, debates about the direction of policy or something like that. There was one instance uh, in the entire more than 30 years of Herod's rule uh, where he uh, does something on his own, basically. He sort of ventures outside the territory assigned to him uh, to fight some robbers. Um, and he immediately is reprimanded. And uh, Augustus says, you know, if, if you do that again, you know, we're no longer friends. And that's basically, uh, you know, that, that's what he says. And um, yeah, Herod, of course, uh, uh, has to sort of back up, back down. Um, so alliances in that sense are very stable. I mean, this is a very, very stable alliance, but perhaps not what we would actually call an alliance. Um, yeah, can, would you actually call it an alliance? Like in the Roman state, but... I think I'd, in some ways um, I'd build on that to maybe it's worth talking a little bit about this idea of friends. So that episode when um, Herod has basically gone over to the borders, um, the borders into Nabatea because um, certain brigands have been coming across and making raids and so on. And this causes a huge um, sort of disturbance and upset with Augustus. And this idea that you are no longer my friend, um, that mean that term friend, so amicus in Latin or philos in Greek, has perhaps a greater resonance than the translation in English. It, it has a more formal designation that sort of kings um, for the Roman Empire, if they are allied, are the friends of the Roman people, friends and allies of the Roman people. So this terminology is there and this language of kind of friendship and everything else. But as Benedict has said, the actual practice of this, when you look at what is happening and the dynamics and how people are interacting and how these individuals are interacting, it is abundantly clear that this is not what we would define as a friendship. This is a subordinate relationship and um, the various allied kings I think must hearken to the emperor, at least Augustus. I think also actually at certain points that we see in Herod and in either Josephus or Nicolaus's narrative of what is going on with Herod, also to the emperor's representatives um, in various regions as well. Now, some people might dispute this or might think of it as a different relationship. So actually there is a language of an alliance in some ways that comes out in some of the formal um, sort of diplomatic relations. And then when you look at what is happening in terms of actual interactions, that's where we might say it really isn't an alliance at all. Can you comment on the relationship between Herod and Nicolaus? How did Herod benefit from being represented by Nicolaus in legal and diplomatic affairs? What was Nicolaus like as a negotiator, advisor, and prosecutor? Yeah, I, I think, so in terms of the relationship between the two, we have a few fragments, um, not just sort of from reading between the lines of Josephus, but preserved in later texts from antiquity, so 10th century excerpts, um, which talk a bit about this. And one um, rather beautiful fragment sort of portrays the relationship between the two of them as Nicolaus trying to educate Herod and sort of guiding him through implicitly quite patiently his 
interest in various arts so that they studied philosophy together and rhetoric together and Herod gradually just you lose his interest in one and they move on to the next one and so on and then they talk about history and so on and so forth so from those fragments at least you get this impression of a very close respectful relationship with Nicolaus as kind of educator of the king in some ways um you can because this is sort of probably derived from what Nicolaus himself was saying you can sort of believe that or not this is part of what Nicolaus is trying to say that he was trying to be a good influence on Herod and actually train him as a sort of good educated king should be. Um, in terms of more of sort of the actual actions and what Nicolaus was doing later um, I think Herod benefited from Nicolaus as advocate or as representative and it does seem as though he took on more and more of the kind of interactions with Rome as we get sort of later as well in the sense of someone who through this perhaps Greek rhetorical training Greek philosophical training and so on in some ways knew perhaps the rules of the game as they would be understood at Rome as well and by Romans there is this kind of common understanding from this perhaps Greek education but this kind of elite education in general that Nicolaus seems to have been quite good at capitalizing upon um, he also seems to have been fairly good in legal contexts in terms of advocating making these big speeches, either in prosecution um, of one of Herod's sons, um, Antipater, later, um, who is portrayed as sort of implicitly guilty of what he's been accused of, but also representing to the imperial centre, so to Augustus in particular, um, coming back to exactly that affair that we've just been talking about of Herod apparently making excursions over the border into Nabatea, and then Nicolaus is the one who has to defend him, who has to sort of take on the mantle. And he does this very, very successfully. He turns around a situation that looks completely lost. Um, so in, in terms of what Nicolaus was like as a negotiator and advisor and so on, he seems to have been very successful. This is all filtered through the fact that if we believe that all of this goes back to Nicolaus's own writings, he is, of course, presenting himself as being very successful. Um, and we might then want to sort of temper our own assessment of that um, as well, in light of the fact that this is possibly derived from his own account of his own actions, where, of course, he's a wonderful advisor. And of course, he won various cases and so on and so forth. What role did Herod's advisors play in his conduct? How do Josephus and Nicolaus understand the character of a quote-unquote good advisor? Um, I, I can carry on talking, Benedict. I don't yeah, sure. sure. Why not? Um, I think maybe a slightly... Um, a, a slightly kind of um, circuitous way to answer this question. I think that... You have to think a bit about um, how Nicolaus is trying to apologise for his own role in Herod's court. And in part, that's by telling a story about Herod that fits in with a pattern that he has used for other rulers as well, i.e. that Herod is fundamentally a fairly weak character, that he has this kind of very rapid rise, but then he um, begins to be more manipulated by the people around him, whether that's women at court or particular sects and so on. Um, he is more subject to his emotions. He becomes more paranoid. 
all of this is kind of Greek historiographical um, topoi conventions of how you write about tyrants, this kind of descent. But within this, and this is why it's relevant to the advisor question, because he is fairly weak, who is around him matters, because if he is subject to manipulation by various more capable actors around him, if you have someone who is therefore the good advisor, who is someone like Nicolaus, who is concerned as he portrays himself with justice and with doing the so-called right thing and so on, then perhaps a better course can be steered for the king and for his kingship in general. So I think Nicolaus is interested in advancing this role of good advisor in many ways, both to try and defend what he has done, but also to possibly try to advocate his own role and his own value to various rulers and possibly also to um, Augustus himself, if we're thinking that he is writing this in Rome and is in that court as well, he is advertising his value. Now, as to what Josephus thinks of that, in all honesty, I'm not entirely sure. I don't know that Josephus is thinking so much about advisors or has a, a huge amount extra to say. I'd have to actually go through and have a think, bit more of a think about how this comes up in other episodes in Josephus. But he certainly preserves this, if we're thinking, he, he's certainly happy to take over some of this in the sense that Josephus is, of course, um, using Nicolaus's text and Nicolaus's account. And in this text, Nicolaus as advisor, as an actor, comes out quite well. And Josephus is obviously chosen to take that over, not to change that. And we get elements of that coming through, which might say something about the fact that he is at least happy to push some of these ideas that, yes, there is a role for a good advisor and for and this can have a good this can have a large effect on the way that a kingship progresses and the decisions that are taken. Um, Benedict, would you have anything to add to that or? Well, only perhaps that the idea of the king having advisors and the advisors being a very important part of monarchic government is of course not specific either to Herod or to Nicolaus or Josephus. It is uh, very common for a Hellenistic king in general uh, to have to have such advisors and these advisors being talked about in historiographic writing. So if you read Polybius, for example, uh, or Diodorus about uh, you know uh, earlier events and uh, events in other places, you have some of the same stuff. So in that sense, um, Josephus probably didn't need to develop his own specific theory about the role of a good advisor because some of this was uh, uh, topical, so to say. All historians assumed that the king would not uh, make decisions without uh, without being influenced by these people. And the, the idea of the king being relatively weak or in that perhaps, uh, let's say, limited in his power by the different, by having to accommodate all the factions and different advices he got uh, at his court is, is quite common actually in ancient literature. Um, so in that sense, neither Nicolaus nor Josephus were probably particularly innovative there. The interesting bit about Nicolaus is that he was actually a part of, of the court of Herod and uh, that he is in that sense uh, talking about his, his, own, his own role. Yeah. On page 161, you write the following. You write, once again, we see that understanding Josephus 
like any ancient historian writing about things that happened a century ago, as a compiler does not at all deny him the ability to make his own arguments. What do you mean by this observation and insight? This is a comment on the state of the scholarly debate at the moment. Um, the project that we have pursued in this book is uh, in that sense a bit um, risky that it isn't what people normally do nowadays. Kim has mentioned that earlier in this podcast that uh, people nowadays tend to focus on, let's say, Josephus as an author, and they don't really uh, ask what kind of sources he used, uh, what kind of ideas he got from others, in part uh, legitimately, because they think we cannot ultimately know that anyway. And uh, in that discourse, it is relatively common if someone comes and says, but I want to know about the sources. I want to know uh, what Nicolaus wrote and what Josephus took from him. Uh, you can be criticized by your colleagues as seeing Josephus as a mere compiler as someone who didn't have his own thoughts, but uh, merely copied, in this case, from Nicolaus and uh, also from other authors, of course. Um, and first of all, we don't think that Josephus was just that. But uh, the quotation you gave um, tries to also make the point that actually, um, I mean, compiler as such is, uh, it is a negative word nowadays. But uh, it, to some it, to some degree, it is a necessary way of uh, writing history in antiquity. You have to read what is there already, and you don't always have to, uh, you know, create something entirely new. You work with what is there already, and then you add to it. And uh, I think what we've tried to show is how Josephus did both of that. On the one hand, yes, he compiled things, but that's not a negative thing. That's not, you know. The, that's not a problem. It is what he's supposed to do as a historian at that time. It is what people legitimately thought was was ancient history. It was history writing. And then he added to it. And uh, our job, as we understood it in this book, is to try wherever possible to see what his own contribution was. And so... Uh, we try to sort of protect ourselves a bit against the potential criticism that we have reduced Josephus to a mere compiler. We do think that Josephus was a capable author, but we do think that he worked within the parameters of history writing of his time, which was, uh, to, to, at least uh, to, a, to a significant degree, compiling stuff that had already been written. Yeah, if I can perhaps distill that a little bit. It... It, the, the negative connotation to compiler is entirely a modern preoccupation, basically, that when this is held, that you're just saying he's a mere compiler. There is not necessarily any problem with this. I mean, um, as Benedict has said, in antiquity, this may have been seen as the new big thing, especially in this kind of universal history idea of putting together a, an immense, immense kind of narrative of what's going on. And then what Josephus is doing later in the antiquities of actually a 20 book, a huge kind um, historical project of from the creation to his own day of the history of the Jewish people. No one may have had a problem with him being a compiler. It may have been a very, very innovative method of writing history, or at least the new big thing um, that sets him sort of, it makes him do a distinctive thing in antiquity with none of the negative connotations that are sort of assumed if we use that term 
in a modern context. So if we wrote, for example, about the students' work, that this is just compiled from other sources, of course, it is negative, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, but uh, that, that is not uh, probably um, what uh, people would have said about Josephus. How does your book advance our understanding of the Roman Emperor Augustus and his epoch? And can you speak along these lines to the Roman emperors that King Herod would have interacted with during his time in power? Yeah, I think um, I think some of this comes back to the ideas that we've been talking about throughout of sort of the, the Eastern intellectual looking in and looking at sort of what is going on at the heart of imperial government in Rome. Um, and Augustus is part of that. Augustus, or then Octavian, Octavian rising to power and the creation of the Principate, and what this new system looks like within a more Eastern tradition. Um, more specifically on Augustus himself, he does figure occasionally in um, Josephus's writings and then going back, we think also in Nicolaus's writings as well. For example, when Herod um, makes complaints against his sons at certain points or a couple of his sons, one of these hearings is before Augustus himself. Um, when Herod, again, coming back to the brigands or whatever, is um, accused because of this, Nicolaus must defend Herod in front of Augustus, in front of the emperor. And thus we do actually get some representations of the figure of Augustus um, and what he's doing. And actually in that um, brigands episode, so this is the Sileus episode in part as well, um, Sileus being the Nabataean minister, very powerful minister, who makes the accusation before Augustus um, that Herod has completely overstepped his bounds, that he has invaded Nab Nabataean territory in pursuing these brigands um, without Roman permission implicitly as well, that he has slaughtered many people and so on and so forth. Um, this is the accusation that is made before Augustus, and this is the one that Augustus reacts to um, quite strenuously and says, sort of, you are no longer my friend, and so on. But the whole of that interaction actually shows him as reacting in that way before he has heard both sides, before he has heard any defence of Herod's action by his representative, um, before he has heard the whole case. And in view of the way that Augustus may have wanted to present himself, um, and perhaps how some other authors were doing this, this looks rather interesting. This is a slightly more hot-headed, impatient Augustus who sort of jumps to certain decisions, um, even concerning one of apparently his closest friends, without actually letting justice take its course, without letting the full legal process, if you're thinking of it in terms of a legal process, it could also be thought of as a diplomatic mission and so on, play out. And Nicolaus then has to persuade him back in and sort of say, hang on, no, this is not what you thought. This is what actually happens, which then comes back to the role of the advisor and everything else that we've been talking about before. But that, that kind of detail um, and that betrayal of Augustus is potentially quite interesting and potentially quite different. And you could compare that perhaps with Nicolaus's portrayal of him in the life of Augustus, which we don't really deal with so much in this book because it is a different text and we were writing about Herod. Um, so I think in terms of the figure itself and the portrayal of the figure, we can get a little bit out of this too. But otherwise it fits more broadly into this understanding of what is happening at this point of quite momentous change in the government in Rome and how different peoples are making sense of it. Can you tell us about Herod's sons? 
Can you introduce our listeners to them for those who are unaware? Yes. Um, Herod had many sons. Uh, this is a product in part of the fact that he also had many wives. Um, I think, Benedict, correct me if I'm wrong, because it's easy to forget some of Herod's wives. He had 10 wives, I think, that we're aware of. Um, eight are yeah. named. Yeah, eight are named. And two are not named, um, so we don't know much about them. Um, this is quite unusual, actually, polygamy. Um, it doesn't really provoke much comment from Josephus, and polygamy among royal circles um, in the Jewish tradition is thought to be allowed. But it is a fact that the Hasmoneans, so going before Herod, don't seem to have done it. So it is, it is a little bit odd, actually, in some senses from the Jewish tradition. But yes, so Herod had multiple wives um, and thus multiple sons, I think nine that we know of. Um, however, there may have been others who are not mentioned in the narrative, either because they did not survive for a long time. I mean, um, sort of... Um, infant death is obviously a bit higher in the ancient world and so on, or they just may not have figured that heavily in um, his sort of the historical tradition, so they don't get mentioned. Um, and then I think there are five daughters as well. Um, and the same caveat applies. Maybe there were more, maybe they didn't survive, maybe they just weren't thought worthy of mention because they're women and you know, unless something happens, then they might not be thought of as quite as important. The sons, however, who were probably the of the most interest we were writing about and the ones who actually come up in the book are first Herod's eldest son that we know of, um, Antipater, who is his son by his first wife called Doris, um, who is a commoner, no one of particular kind of repute or renown, um, who is actually divorced at a certain point so that Herod can marry Mariamna who is of Hasmonean descent, so is connected to the prior ruling dynasty. And that may have been a motivation for Herod marrying her because it establishes this connection to the prior dynasty. Um, Doris is later recalled and so on and the son with them, but that kind of action establishes a kind of tension at court between Doris and Antipater when he gets older and Mariamne and her sons, um, who are Alexander and Aristobulus. All of these three end up being executed at various times. Um, and I think possibly one of the more interesting points to think about when maybe reading our book or reading this portion of the text on Herod is how the sons and the wives become sort of a way of talking about court factions um, and how different parts and different family, family lines at court are interacting and are contesting their position at court and who will eventually get to succeed Herod. And that is where we get Antipater, kind of um, the eldest son, portrayed as the arch villain trying to do everything in his power to cast the Hasmonean um, descendants, so Alexander and Aristobulus, in a very terrible light, as though they are conspiring against their father and so on, which eventually is quite successful because they are executed. But then it all comes undone as Antipater is found out and is also executed later as well. Um, so the various sons and the various descendants actually seem to cause trouble for Herod in terms of creating much uncertainty about who will succeed him and then perhaps destabilising the the court dynamics as well. 
Um, Benedict, do you have anything to add on the sons or um, the way that this work, because this also can be linked to Hellenistic dynasties and how they work as well in some ways, uh, particularly the... Yeah, Hellenistic of course you can. Um, so again, uh, what we see at the Herodian court is not as such highly unusual in the ancient world. Uh, it is unusual in a Jewish context, that is true. But in Hellenistic wider uh, setting, it is quite common for kings to have many wives, uh, or at least more than one, uh, precisely because they need to uh, to deal with various interest groups and factions and uh, marriage and uh, well, then also, of course, um, uh, children are a way of doing that. And uh, then you often have it in Hellenistic dynasties that the sons born from different mothers will fight among each other and potentially then also uh, get in conflict with their fathers, whereas the sons born from the same mother usually don't. And uh, this is also what we have here. The strife at the Herodian court is between uh, Doris's son on the one hand and the two sons of Mariam on the other, who operate together. There doesn't seem to be anything that, uh, that sort of uh, uh, keeps them apart from each other. So, so that is a quite typical scenario, I think. And uh, this whole notion that Herod killed his sons, and not just one of them, but uh, at least three, uh, is actually uh, probably one of the things that people in Rome knew about Herod, because that is something that is quite unusual. I mean, uh, usually you try to sort of come to some sort of arrangement and not kill your own sons, because you do want you know some of them to, to succeed you. And of course, there is the famous joke that... Uh, uh, that Augustus supposedly made that it would be better to be Herod's pick than his son, uh, because obviously Herod being Jewish uh, wouldn't eat pork. Um, we don't know if Augustus actually said that, but it is in ancient literature in Macrobius. Uh, so it is perhaps one of the things that people were aware of and that made them think that Herod might have been a rather weird person. Unrelated to Josephus and Nicolaus. Are there any other Roman historians to write about Herod? There are a few. Yes. How are Josephus and Nicolaus's depictions similar or different from other Roman depictions of Herod? There are a few mentions of Herod. In Tacitus, for example, there is one in Plutarch. Um, he usually comes up when people write about, uh, about Antony and his policies in the East. And then there is a mention somewhere that he installed Herod as king in 40 BC. Uh, sometimes there is an additional mention that, you know, Augustus later confirmed this, but that is just a one-liner, basically. So nothing that gives us uh, much to work with and nothing that you can usefully compare to a detailed uh, picture like the one given by Josephus or Nicolaus. There is a bit more in Strabo, an ancient geographer, who uh, actually lived uh, much earlier than Josephus, so he's also Augustan period. Um, and there we get uh, a few more details about Herod, and Josephus also cites Strabo a couple of times, uh, so he seems to have been writing a bit more about the Herodians than what we have in the geography. However, it does seem that Strabo doesn't actually know much. So, for example, he gives us the wrong name for Herod's father. Uh, he calls him Herod as well, when, of course, he was actually Antipater. Um, he also claims that Herod was a priest, which is true. Um, we know he wasn't. So it does seem like Strabo was 
superficially informed, but not not well well informed enough to to actually give us good information. And again, we don't really have anything on the same scale as Josephus and Nicolaus. We do know that there was at least one biography about Herod, um, written by a certain Ptolemy, um, perhaps Ptolemy of Ascalon, which is is one name of, of a grammarian uh, who, who worked in antiquity, but. Uh, only a very small fragment of this has survived. So it's maybe three lines of text and they don't even deal with Herod himself, um, unfortunately. So we don't know what was written in that biography. And actually for what we did in the book, that is one of the reasons why um, this is all so speculative and risky because it could of course be that some of the things at least that we think Josephus has from Nicolaus he actually has from a work that we don't know, like Ptolemy's biography that is listed as a work that existed in later literature. But we can't even date that biography, so we don't even know it, if it was written before Josephus. So, so you know, th there is there is obviously uh, uh, some uh, some uh, well speculation there. Uh, another person who wrote about Herod uh, was Herod himself, because Herod also wrote his own. Well, perhaps not autobiography, but certainly some sort of uh, treatment of his own reign that is mentioned once by Josephus. Um, and we don't know how far that extended and uh, what kind of character it had. We also don't know if Herod actually wrote that himself or if maybe Nicolaus would have helped him or something. That That's possible. Um, so that's another unknown. But it's a known unknown, at least. We know that it was there. We just don't know what was in it. Yeah. Can you tell us about the Sileus episode? What happened in this episode? What does it reveal about Herod and Augustus? What new lights does your book shed on King Aretas of Arabia and the relationship between Roman Arabia and Herodian Judea? Yeah, I mean, um, the Sileus episode is something that we've been dancing around and coming back to again and again. <laughs> so it's perhaps good to talk about this. Sileus is a really interesting character, I think. Um, he is a Nabataean, let's say, minister or official. Um, he is not the king himself, but he is extremely powerful in this realm. And he pops up on various occasions in connection with Herod and in connection with Judea. Um, one perhaps interesting episode is um, in 20 BCE when he... Um, he is in Jerusalem to try to negotiate a loan of, I think, 60 talents or something like this. And at the same time, he meets Herod's sister, Salome. And a little while after this, he tries to marry Salome. Salome herself seems to agree to this and be quite keen. But for various reasons, Herod has reservations and says that, that he will only allow this if Sileus converts, um, if he is circumcised and so on. And Sileus refuses. So all of these arrangements fall through. Now, the Sileus episode, as we're treating it um, in the book, and which is a bit more pertinent for what we've been talking about, is this episode of the brigands. So, um, at, um, so a bit later, Herod is having some trouble in uh, the northeastern portion of his realm, Trachonitis, 
with repeated kind of brigandage and so on. And the brigands escape to Nabatea and Sileus seems to give them sort of safe refuge, just says you can stay. And they keep them making incursions and being problematic. And this is when Herod then takes action and goes across the border into Nabatea and kills them and their families as well. Now, Herod claims, or at least this is what we get in portions of the narrative and then also in Nicolaus's defence of Herod, that he had at every point consulted with the Roman officials in this region before he took any action. So with, I think it's Saturninus and Volumnius at this point, and that he had explicit permission to go and do this, and that this was in part to get repayment of that loan in 20 BCE, which Sileus had repeatedly promised to um, repay within a fixed time period and repeatedly had failed to do this. Um, in Nicolaus's defence speech later, he also says that Sileus had promised on an oath by the Puche, by the genius almost of Augustus himself, so this is an insult to the emperor, that he had not repaid. And it was only after all of this that Herod went and sort of made this action. Now, Sileus then compared complained after Herod had made these incursions to Augustus himself at Rome. And that's where that episode takes off that we've been talking about throughout of Augustus reacting apparently quite um, quite um, emphatically and um, quite quickly and saying, Herod is no longer my friend, this is absolutely appalling and so on. And this is the point of tension that Nicolaus then has to redress and has to sort of try to sort out. So I think it tells us quite a bit about the interactions and the relationship in some ways between Judea and Rome, but also between Herod and Augustus. So that individual relationship that Benedict was talking about that underlined this alliance, if we're talking about that, um, if we're talking in those terms in this period or this unequal kind of alliance. And the fact that this king really must defer even to these particular representatives, not just to Augustus himself. I don't think that the episode really tells us that much about um, Eratus IV and sort of general relations going into there. Maybe Benedict has a bit more to add to that, but I think um, confined to earlier in that kind of dynamic, yeah. I mean, what it does show is how everyone in the region is looking towards Rome. It's not just Herod. It is clearly the Arabians, the Nabataeans as well. And there are a whole host of other people, um, of course, uh, who... Uh, know that the power comes from Rome, and uh, that is something it tells us about, you know, about the political situation, including the Nabataeans. And including how these various actors will try and play that off, okay? So it is kind of unequal alliance, but they are both trying to manipulate this to their own advantage as well. Yeah. There are some scenes in Chapter 7 that I'd be curious to ask you about. if you don't mind me summarizing the passages briefly. Um, One is on page 153, you write as follows. With so much ambiguity in Josephus's work surrounding self-sacrifice and killing of family members, it may be seen as unsurprising that Herod's encounter with the Galilean robber also raises a number of ethical questions. Still, the question is quite different from Masada. Herod had not only planned to save the family, but had made this intention known, unlike Ptolemy I and Diodorus or the Romans at Masada. More importantly, what is subtly implied in the Masada episode becomes the main feature of the narrative here. The mother and her children explicitly ask the old man to be spared 
only to be slaughtered by their head of family. It is difficult to see much heroism here. Even the Sakari receive a much more sympathetic treatment. Yet again, we may think of Nicolaus as the original source. The fact that the man is called a robber is interesting, but perhaps not decisive. It is how Josephus himself calls his own opponents in Galilee and elsewhere. This is page 153. It's connected in some ways to what you have on page 150, where you describe the following theater scene. As should be clear by now, the theater scene as a whole is used by Josephus to make several points that serve his wider historiographic outlook. Jewish devotion to God's laws, which goes to the point of martyrdom, the connection between those laws and loyalty to Rome, and Herod's role in their gradual dissolution. All of this is there, and all of this is Josephan. But it seems that the basis of it all was something very different indeed. Nicolaus's portrayal of Jewish opposition to Herod as a pitonesque assembly of irrational and hypocritical fools, page 150. Can you explain these two episodes? Can you elaborate on these two passages in the chapter? Um, what are you describing? What happened? What does this reveal about Josephus's historiography? Yeah, uh, so I, I think we probably need to describe uh, those scenes first. And uh, I mean, sure. both of these uh, that you picked out there are actually examples of this dialogue between two authors that we've tried to reconstruct, uh, Josephus reading Nicolaus. So both of these uh, scenes, uh, if I think we can call them scenes, um, have to do with resistance against Herod. Um, the first one that you mentioned uh, about the, the robber in, in Galilee is very early in Herod's reign. So he has just been made king by the Romans in Rome. He traveled to Rome for that. Uh, on the throne in Jerusalem is someone else at that moment, Antigonus Matathias. So he comes back from Rome and uh, has been crowned, but uh, he still has to sort of gain the throne because someone else is on it. So, so he has to fight. And in that fight, uh, there is a scene where a family of, well, bandits, they are called bandits there, but presumably they are some, they are people who, you know, resist this, this fight of Herod. Uh, they have been trapped in a cave or that they've, let's say, uh, sought, ref uh, sought refuge there and are found. And it is a man, his wife and seven children. And the wife and the children say, uh, please, can we go out? Herod is, you know, trying to be nice. Herod says, you know, I will spare you. Just come out. You know, I don't, I don't want to hurt you. Just come out and all will be fine. And the wife and the children want to do that. And the uh, husband or father uh, then positions himself outside the cave and kills them all as they, uh, as they leave the cave. Uh, the reason given there is that, um, you know, this man doesn't like Herod. He thinks Herod is of low birth, not fit to be king. Um, so that is basically an individual act of resistance. Now, you can read this as a very heroic act. I mean, it looks insane at first, right? Uh, I think we agree on that. But uh, you can read it as a heroic act. This person sacrifices himself because, of course, he kills himself in the end as well, and his entire family because he doesn't want to be ruled by Herod. And 
I think that is probably what, what Josephus saw in that scene and why he presents it. Because Josephus himself, although uh, he certainly knew how to avoid martyrdom for himself, uh, he does portray uh, Judaism as a religion of martyrdom. You die for the laws. You die, you know, for for the what is perceived as God's commands. And um, in that sense, these people could be portrayed as heroic martyrs, and that is how they have always been read in scholarship. But if you compare it to other martyrdoms or to similar scenes in ancient literature, including Masada, uh, also written by Josephus, uh, the conditions are actually different, right? People uh, in these circumstances, um, uh, for example, in Masada, but also Ptolemy the uh, first, extending his uh, uh, his sort of, a similar sort of sort of offer to rebels in in Cyprus. Um, it is always that you know people know that they will die anyway. And people know that, you know, it is it is a desperate situation. Uh, so they have a very good reason to die and also all agree that they want to die. In this case, uh, eight out of nine people don't actually want to die and they are slaughtered by the, by the ninth, by, by, by the head of family. So that doesn't actually look very, very, uh, very nice and very heroic. It actually looks insane. And I think it would have looked insane in antiquity already to some readers at least. So our proposal is that Nicolaus actually wrote a story about the irrational resistance movement against Herod, how people went so far as to kill their entire families uh, because, you know, they were just insane. Uh, and Herod tried to prevent them from doing so, but couldn't because they were insane. And what Josephus found there was not that, but a heroic story about martyrdom. And uh, the same is, is true for the other scene you mentioned, the theater scene. In that case, that's later when Herod is already established. Um, and he introduces to Jerusalem uh, the games called Caesarea, so the Caesarian games, the emperor's games, to celebrate Augustus. They are held in a theater, uh, which hasn't been found archaeologically, so uh, we don't know where it was, but um, they are held in a, in a big theater. People uh, fight themselves, you know, uh, like gladiators uh, in the arena, so it is a custom imported from Rome to Jerusalem. And uh, as decoration of all of that, there are trophies uh, representations of defeated peoples uh, that are now subject to the Roman Empire. And these trophies are stacks of wood with armor on them. So they look vaguely human, but of course they are not. Uh, however, some Jews in that episode uh, complain that, you know, these are images of humans and God says that you shan't make images. So um, what Herod then does is he just puts the armor off, he dismantles the trophies and shows them it's, it's nothing, right? It's not it's not humans, it's not, uh, you know, it's just stack of, stacks of wood. And then everyone laughs and goes home. So that seems to be a demonstration of, again, Jewish sensibilities uh, and their irrational nature, right? They are so superstitious that they actually think that, you know, these stacks of woods are images of people and that they should be banned, when in fact, Herod can demonstrate that they are not, and that it's just something completely normal. However, the scene then continues with a group of people plotting to kill the king because of his violation of the law. So despite the fact that it has just been proven that, you know, that nothing untowards has happened, and, you know, there was no, uh, there, there was no violation of the ban on images, they still want to kill him. And they are led by 
a blind man who hasn't even seen the images because he's blind, but he has heard about them and he's very outraged. And he says, no, we, we, we have to kill him. So this whole assembly of, of conspirators is in the context of the narrative, uh, completely ridiculous, right? It does make you think of Monty Python and that, that's why we use that, uh, use that uh, adjective there. Um, but again, I think what Josephus saw in that episode, and again, we argue it is originally Nicolaus making fun of Jewish religious sensibilities, what Josephus saw there was courageous people standing up for the laws. And that is what for him Judaism is about. And so he adds a few things. He adds a sort of framework around it saying, this is, you know, uh, uh, this is how the dissolution of Jewish customs happened under Herod, but then there were these great resistance fighters who, who died as martyrs. Uh, but the base of it, we argue at least, uh, was uh, was Nicolaus actually making fun of uh, completely irrational sensibilities. And that would have appeared to, to Roman readers, of course, at the time, who did know about some of the Jewish uh, sensibilities and did find them funny. Of course, you know, they were not very enlightened or something. They just thought, you know, these people are different. Let's make fun of them. So, yeah, that, that's what that means. And that is how we imagine the dialogue, right? Uh, Josephus finding something in Nicolaus almost turning it on its head sometimes, reframing it and using it to convey his own points, which in this case were radically different from what Nicolaus was originally saying. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, could I kindly ask you, what are you working on next as your subsequent project? What are you working on now as a current project? Um, so I am working on something actually very different um, because my interests generally go often towards sort of legal history under the Roman Empire in a more kind of social history framework that I'm trying to think about how people solve um, individual disputes in the Roman M Empire outside of court. So instead of going to sort of the state offer of justice, if you have a problem with your neighbour, what do you do? And this ranges from the full spectrum of kind of perhaps more formal arbitration and negotiation to cursing them and so on and what I want to do is try to use this as a way of essentially telling a story about romanization in one sense of sort of how these processes that might be quite separate from the Roman Empire change over the course of time and also a kind of developing legalism in the empire that as a product of empire you, empire, you get more kind of legal terminology filtering through even into processes where it's got no role whatsoever. So that, that's what I'm trying to think about next. And I am trying to write a book about the Southern Levant, basically Israel uh, under the Seleucid Empire. So going back in time a bit from Herod uh, back to the Hellenistic period, thinking about how the Seleucid Empire shaped people's perceptions of something like, you know, statehood, uh, state administration, expectations of, you know, what, what should the state provide for you, basically, but also what can it make you do, this kind of thing. Um, looking at things like language change, uh, documentation, archives, uh, all of this. So um, if I'm lucky, I will ever, uh, I, I might finish this book or not. It doesn't actually matter. I'm not sure that the world is waiting for it, but uh, it is certainly what I try to do at the moment. Those sound like marvelous projects that will make significant contributions. They sound absolutely fascinating.
and really, uh, they really whet my appetite uh, for further curiosity. Well, that's kind of you. <laughs> Very <Thank> nice. You. <laughs> uh, as we bring our dialogue today to a close, I'm your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I've been honored to be in dialogue with Kimberly Tchaikovsky and Benedict Eckhart. Both of them are senior lecturers in ancient history at the University of Edinburgh. We have been discussing their new book, Herod in History, Nicholas of Damascus and the Augustan Context, published in New York by Oxford University Press, 2021. Thank you. <laughs>